We pray that God's will may be done by us on earth as it is in heaven. And is it not done willingly there? It is also done constantly. Blessed is he who doeth righteousness at all times. Psalm 106, verse 3. Our obedience to the command must be as the fire of the altar which never went out. Leviticus 6.13 It must be as the motion of the pulse, always beating. The wind blows off the fruit, but the fruits of our obedience must not be blown off by any wind of persecution. I have chosen you, said Jesus, that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. John 15.16 Use, they are reproved who live in a willful breach of God's commandments, in malice, uncleanness, intemperance, and walk opposite to the commandments. To live in a willful breach of the commandment is first against reason. Are we able to stand out against God? Do we provoke the Lord? Are we stronger than He? 1 Corinthians 10.22 Can we measure arms with God? Can uh, impotence stand against omnipotence? A sinner acts against reason. Second, it is against equity. We have our being from God, and is it not just that we should obey Him who gives us our being? We have all our subsistence from Him, and is it not fitting that as He gives us our allowance, we should give Him our allegiance? If a general gives his soldiers pay, he expects them to march at His command for... Us to live in violation of the divine commands is manifestly unjust. Third, it is against nature. Every creature in its kind obeys God's law. Animate creatures obey Him. God spake to the fish, and it set Jonah ashore. Jonah 2.10 Inanimate creatures, the wind and the sea, obey God. Mark 4.41 The very stones, if God gave them a commission, will cry out against the sins of men. Habakkuk 2.11, the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. None disobey God but wicked men and devils. And can we find no better companions? Fourth, it is against kindness. How many mercies have we to allure us to obey? We have miracles of mercy. The apostle therefore joins these two together, disobedient and unthankful which dyes sin with a crimson color, 2 Timothy 3, 2, as the sin is great, for it is a contempt of God, a hanging out of the flag of defiance against Him, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So the punishment will be great. It cuts off from mercy. God's mercy is for them that keep His commandments, but there is no mercy for them that live in a willful breach of them. All God's judgments set themselves in battle array against the disobedient, temporal judgments and eternal. Leviticus 26:15 and 16, Christ comes in flames of fire to take vengeance on them that obey not God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, God has iron chains to hold those who break the golden chains of His command, chains of darkness by which the devils are held ever. Jude 6, God has time enough as long as eternity to reckon with all the willful breakers of His commandments. Question, how shall we keep God's commandments? Pray for the Spirit of God. We cannot do it in our strength. The Spirit must work in us both to will and to do. Philippians 2, 3, 13. 
When the magnet draws, the iron moves. So when God's Spirit draws, we run in the way of His commandments. The third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 27. This commandment has two parts. One, a negative expressed that we must not take God's name in vain, that is, cast any reflections and dishonor on his name. Two, an affirmative implied that we should take care to reverence and honor his name, as in the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be thy name. I shall now speak of the negative expressed in this commandment or the prohibition. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The tongue is an unruly member. All the parts and organs of the body are defiled with sin, as every branch of wormwood is bitter. But the tongue is full of deadly poison. James 3.8 There is no one member of the body breaks forth more in God's dishonor than the tongue. We have this commandment, therefore, as a bridle for the tongue, to bind it to its good behavior. This prohibition is backed with strong reason, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That is, he will not hold him innocent. Men of place and eminence deem it disgraceful to have their names abused and inflict heavy penalties on the offenders. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, but looks upon him as a criminal and will severely punish him. The thing here insisted on is that great care must be had that the holy and reverend name of God be not profaned by us or taken in vain. We take God's name in vain, firstly, when we speak slightly and irreverently of His name, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 28.58 David speaks of God with reverence, the mighty God, even the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 1 That men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah, Art the most high over all the earth? Psalm 83:18. The disciples, when speaking of Jesus, hallowed his name, Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Luke 24:19. When we mention the names of kings, we give them some title of honor, as Excellent Majesty, Your Highness. So should we speak of God with the sacred reverence that is due to the infinite majesty of heaven? When we speak slightly of God or His works, He interprets it as a contempt and taking His name in vain. Secondly, when we profess God's name but do not live answerably to it, we take His name in vain. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Titus 1.16 When men's tongues and lives are contrary to one another, when under a mask of profession they lie and are unclean, they make use of God's name to abuse the Lord and take it in vain. There is a saying, pretended holiness is merely double wickedness. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, Romans 2.24. When the heathen saw the Jews who professed to be God's chosen people to be scandalous, it made them speak evil of God and hate the true religion for their sakes. Thirdly, when we use God's name in idle 
chit-chat, idle discourse. He is not to be spoken of, but with a holy awe upon our hearts, to bring his name in at every turn when we are not thinking of him, to say, Oh my God, or Oh God, Lordy, Lordy, or uh, the Lord willing, or God willing, is to take God's name in vain. How many are guilty here? Though they have God in their mouths, they have the devil in their hearts. It is a wonder that fire does not come out from the Lord to consume them, as it did Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. Fourthly, when we worship him with our lips, but not with our hearts, we take his name in vain. God calls for the heart, my son, give me thy heart. Proverbs 23:26. The heart is the chief thing in religion. It draws the will and affections after it, as the sun draws the planets around it. The heart is the incense that perfumes our holy things, is the altar that sanctifies the offering. When we seem to worship God, but withdraw our heart from Him, we take His name in vain. This people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Isaiah 29:13. Now, hypocrites take God's name in vain. Their religion is a lie. They seem to honor God, but they do not love Him. Their hearts go after their lusts. They set their heart on their iniquity. Hosea 4, 8. Their eyes are lifted up to heaven, but their hearts are rooted in the earth. Ezekiel 33, 31. These are devils in Samuel's mantle. And superstitious persons take God's name in vain. They bring him a few ceremonies, which he never appointed, bow at Christ's name and cringe to an altar, but hate and persecute God's image in his saints. Fifthly, when we pray to him but do not believe in him, we take his name in vain. Faith is a grace that greatly honors God. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, Romans 4.20. But when we pray to God but do not mix faith with our prayer, we take his name in vain. I may pray, says a Christian, but I shall never be the better. I question whether God ever hears or answers such. It is to dishonor God and take his name in vain. It makes him either an idol that has ears and hears not, or a liar who promises mercy to the penitent but will not make good his word. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, 1 John 5.10. When the apostle says in Romans 10.14, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The meaning is, how shall they call on God aright and not believe in him? But how many do call on him who do not believe on him? They ask for pardon, but unbelief whispers their sins are too great to be forgiven. Thus to pray and not believe is to take God's name in vain, and highly dishonors God, as if he were not such a God as the word represents him, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon him. Psalm 86, 5. Sixthly, when in any way we profane and abuse God's word, we take his name in vain. The word of God is profaned in general when profane men meddle with it. It is unseemly and unbecoming a wicked man to talk of sacred things, of God's providence and the decrees of God and heaven. It was very distasteful to Christ to hear the devil quote scripture, It is written, to hear a wicked man who wallows in sin talk of God and religion is offensive. It is taking God's name in vain.
When the word of God is a drunkard's mouth, it is like a pearl hung upon a swine. Under the law, the lips of the leper were to be covered. Leviticus 13.45 The lips of a profane, drunken minister ought to be covered. He is unfit to speak God's word because he takes his name in vain. More particularly, they profane God's word and take his name, first of all, that speaks scornfully of his word. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Second Peter 3, 4. As if they had said the preachers make much ado about the day of judgment, when all must be called to account for their works, but where is the appearing of that day? We see things keep their course and continue as they were since the creation. Thus, they speak scornfully of Scripture and take God's name in vain. If sentence be not speedily executed, men scorn and deride, but judgments are prepared for scorners. Proverbs 19.29 Second of all, those that speak jestingly take God's name in vain. Such are they who sport and play with Scripture. This is playing with fire. Some cannot be merry unless they make bold with God. They make the Scripture a harp to drive away the spirit of sadness. Eusebius relates of one who made a jest of Scripture, and God struck him with frenzy. To play and joke with Scripture shows a very profane heart. Some will rather lose their souls than lose their jokes. These are guilty of taking God's name in vain. Tremble at it. Such as mock at Scripture, God will mock at their calamity. Proverbs 1.26 Third of all, those that bring Scripture to countenance any sin. The word which was written for the suppression of sin is brought by some for the defense of sin. For instance, if we tell a covetous man of his sin that covetousness is idolatry, he will say, Has not God bid me live in a calling? Has he not said, Six days shalt thou labor? And he who provides not for his family is worse than an infidel. Thus he tries to support his covetousness by Scripture. Now it is true that God has bid us take pains in our calling, but not to hurt our neighbor. He has bid us provide for a family, but not by oppression. Ye shall not oppress one another. Leviticus 25.14 He has bid us look after a livelihood, but not to the neglect of the soul. He has bid us lay up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6.20 But He has commanded us to lay out as well as lay up, to sow seeds of charity on the backs and bellies of the poor, which is neglected by such. To bring Scripture, therefore, to uphold us in sin, is a high profanation of Scripture, and taking God's name in vain. Again, if we tell a man of his inordinate passions that he may be drunk with rash anger as well as wine, he will bring Scripture to justify it by saying, Does not the word say, Be ye angry, and sin not, in Ephesians 4.26? True, anger is good when mixed with holy zeal. Anger is without sin when it is against sin. But to sin in anger, to speak unadvisedly with the lips, is to have the tongue set on fire of hell. To bring Scripture to defend any sin is to profane it, and to take God's name in vain. Fourth of all, those that adulterate the word and 
twist it, rest it in a wrong sense. Such are heretics who put their own interpretation upon the Scripture and make it speak that which the Holy Ghost never meant, as, for instance, when they expound those texts literally, which were meant figuratively. Thus, the Pharisees, because God said in the law, Thou shalt bind them the commandments for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, Deuteronomy 6, 8, took it in a literal sense. Pharisees got two scrolls of parchment wherein they wrote the two tables, putting one on their left arms and binding the other to their eyebrows, and thus wrested that scripture and took God's name in vain. It was intended to be understood spiritually of meditating on God's law and putting it in practice. The papists expound the words, This is my body, literally of the very body of Christ, as though when Christ gave the bread, he had two bodies, one in the bread and the other out of the bread, whereas he meant it figuratively as a sign of his body. Again, when those scriptures are expounded figuratively and allegorically, which the Holy Ghost meant literally. For example, Christ said to Peter, Launch out into the deep and make a draft. Luke 5, 4. This text was spoken in a plain, literal sense of launching a net out of the ship, but the papists take it in a mystic and allegorical sense. It proves, say they, that the Pope, who is Peter's successor, shall launch forth and catch the ecclesiastical and political powers over the western parts of the world. But I think the papists have launched out too far beyond the meaning of the text. When men strain their wits to wrest the word to such a sense as pleases them, they profane God's word and take his name in vain. Seventhly, when we swear by God's name, many seldom mention God's name but in oaths for which sin the land mourns. Swear not at all, that is, rashly and sinfully, so as to take God's name in vain. Matthew 5.34 Not but in some cases it is lawful to take an oath before a judge. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and swear by his name. Deuteronomy 6.13 An oath for confirmation is the end of all strife. Hebrews 6.16 When Christ says, Swear not at all, he forbids such swearing as takes God's name in vain. There is a threefold swearing forbidden. First, vain swearing, as when men in their ordinary talking let fly oaths. Some excuse their swearing. It is a coarse wool that will take no dye, and sad, bad sin indeed that has no excuse. Excuse one, I swear little trifling oaths as faith, or by the maths, or gosh, the devil has two false lenses which he sets before your eyes. The one is a little lens in which the sin appears so small that it can hardly be seen, which the devil sets before your eyes when you're going to commit sin. The other is a great magnifying glass wherein sin appears so big it cannot be forgiven, which the devil sets up before your eyes after you have sinned. You say, sin is small when God shall open the eye of your conscience, you will see it to be great, and be ready to despair. You say, <clears throat> they are but small, minced oaths, but Christ forbids vain oaths. Swear not at all. If God will reckon with us for idle words, will not idle oaths be put the account? 
Second excuse, I swear to the truth. See how this harlot's sin would paint itself with an excuse. Though it be true, yet if it be a rash oath, it is sinful. Besides, he that swears commonly must sometimes swear to more than is true. Where much water runs, some gravel or mud will pass along with it. So where there is much swearing, some lies will run along with it. Third excuse, I shall not be believed unless I seal up my words with an oath I swear to God. A man that is honest will be believed without an oath. His bare word carries authority with it and is as good as letters testimonial, as an affidavit. Again, the more a man swears, the less others will believe him. The saying goes, less trust is placed in his oath. Thou art a swearer. Another thinks an oath weighs very light with him, and he cares not what he swears to, so that the more he swears, the less others believe him. He will trust thy bond, but not thy oath. Fourth excuse. It's a habit of swearing I have got, and I hope God will forgive me. Though among men custom has influence and is pleadable in law, yet it is not so in the case of sin. Here, habit has no plea. You've got a habit of swearing and cannot give it up? Is this an excuse? Is a thing well done because it is commonly done? This is so far from being an excuse that it is an aggravation of your sin, as if one that had been accused of killing a man should plead with the judge to spare him because it was his custom to murder. Would not this be an aggravation of the offense? So it is here. Therefore all excuses for this sin of vain swearing are taken away. Dare not to live in this sin, for it is taking God's name in vain, and the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. <clears throat> Second, vile swearing, horrid, prodigious oaths not to be named, swearers like mad dogs fly in the face of heaven, and when they are angered, spew out their blasphemous venom on God's sacred majesty, some playing games when things go cross and the dice runs against them, run against God in oaths and curses, tell them of their sins, seek to bring home these asses from going astray, and it is but pouring gasoline on the flame. They will swear the more. Augustine says they do no less sin who blaspheme Christ now in heaven than the Jews did who crucified him on earth. Swearers profane Christ's blood and tear his name. A woman told her husband that of her three sons, one of them only was his. The father was dying, desired the executor of his estate to find out which was the true natural son and bequeath all his estate to him. The father died. The executor set up his corpse against a tree and delivered to each of the three sons a bow and arrow telling them that he who could shoot nearest the father's heart should have the whole of the estate. Two sons shot as near as they could to his heart, but one son felt nature so to work in him that he refused to shoot, whereupon the executors judged him to be the true son and gave him all the estate. Such as are the true children of God fear to shoot at him, but such as are bastards and not sons care not enough they shoot at him in heaven with their oaths and curses. 
That which makes swearing yet more heinous is that when men have resolved upon any wicked action, they bind themselves with an oath to do it. Such were they who bound themselves with an oath and cursed to kill Paul. Acts 23:12. To commit sin is bad enough, but to swear to commit sin is a high profanation of God's name, and as it were, calls upon God to approve our sin. Third, forswearing, which is a heaven-daring sin. Ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane my name. Leviticus 19.12, perjury, is calling God to witness to a lie. It is said of Philip of Macedon, he would swear and unswear, as might stand best with his interest. Thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Jeremiah 4.2 In righteousness, therefore, it must not be an unlawful oath. In judgment, therefore, it must not be a rash oath. In truth, therefore, it must not be a false oath. Among the Scythians, if a man did forswear himself, he was to have his head stricken off. Because if perjury were allowed, there would be no living in a commonwealth. It would take away all faith and truth from among men. The perjurer is in as bad a case as a witch. For by a false oath he binds his soul fast to the devil. In forswearing or taking a false oath in a court, there are many sins linked together. It is said, many sins in one. For besides taking God's name in vain, the perjurer is a thief. By his false oath, he robs the innocent of his right. He is a perverter of justice. He not only sins himself, but occasions the jury to give a false verdict, and the judge to pass an unrighteous sentence. Surely, God's judgments will find out the perjurer. When God's flying roll or curse goes over the face of the earth, into whose house does it enter? Into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall consume the timber and stones thereof. Zechariah 5, 4. Beza writes of a perjurer that he had no sooner taken a false oath than he was immediately struck with apoplexy, never spake more, and died. Oh, tremble at such horrid impiety. Eighthly, when we prefix God's name to any wicked action, mentioning God in connection with a wicked design is taking his name in vain. I pray, said Absalom, let me pay my vow which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron, Second Samuel 15.7. This pretense of paying his vow made to God was only to cover his treason. As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, ye shall say, Absalom reigneth. Chapter 15, verse 10, when any wicked action is baptized with the name of religion, it is taking God's name in vain. Holes of excommunication, or curses against the Christian. He begins with, in nomine Dei, in the name of God. What a provoking sin is this. It is to do the devil's work and put God's name to it. Ninthly, when we use our tongues any way to the dishonor of God's name, as when we use railing or curse in our passions, especially when we wish a curse upon ourselves, I'll be damned. 
If a thing be not so, when we know it to be false, I have read of one who wished his body might rot, if that which he said was not true, and soon after his body rotted, and he became a loathsome spectacle. Tenthly, when we make rash and unlawful vows, it is a good vow when a man binds himself to do that which the word binds him to, as if he be sick, he vows, if God restore him, he will live a more holy life. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered when I was in trouble. Psalm 66, 13 and 14. But as the saying goes, such a vow should not be made as displeasing to God as to vow a voluntary poverty as monks or vow to live in nunneries. Jephthah's vow was rash and unlawful. He vowed to the Lord to sacrifice that to him which he met with next, and it was his daughter. Judges chapter 11, verse 31. He did ill to make the vow and worse to keep it. Jephthah became guilty of the breach of the third and sixth commandments. Eleventh, when we speak evil of God, we take his name in vain. Numbers 21.5, the people spake against God. Question, how do we speak against God when we murmur at his providences as if he had dealt hardly with us? Murmuring accuses God's justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25, murmuring springs from a bitter root. It comes from pride and discontent. It reproaches God, and thus murmuring takes God's name in vain. It is a sin that God cannot bear. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? Numbers 14, 27. Twelfthly, when we falsify our promise, as when we say, If God spare our life, we will do a certain thing and never intend to do it. Our promise should be sacred and inviolable, but if we make a promise and mention God's name in it, but never intend to keep it, it is a double sin. It is telling a lie and taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. A use. Take heed of taking God's name in vain in any of these ways. Remember the combination and threatening in the text. The Lord will not hold him guiltless, here is a case of less is said and more intended. He will not hold him guiltless. That is, he will be severely avenged on such a one. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Here the Lord speaks after the manner of a judge who holds the court in session. The judge is here. It's God himself, the accusers, Satan, and your own conscience. The charge, taking God's name in vain. The accused, guilty condemned. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Methinks these words, the Lord will not hold him guiltless, should put a lock upon our lips and make us afraid of speaking anything that may bring dishonor upon God or may be taking his name in vain. It may be that men may hold such guiltless when they curse, swear, speak irreverently of God, may let them alone and not punish them. If one takes away another's good name, he shall be sure to be punished. But if one takes away God's good name, where is he that punishes him? He that robs another of his life shall be put to death. But he that robs God of his glory by oaths and curses is spared. But God himself will take the matter into his own hand and will punish him who takes his name in vain. First, sometimes God punishes swearing and blasphemy in this life. 
In the country of Samusia, when there arose a great tempest of thunder and lightning, a soldier burst forth into swearing, but the tempest tore up a great tree by the root which fell upon him and crushed him to pieces. German history tells of a youth who was given to swearing and inventing new curses. The Lord sent a cancer into his mouth, which ate out his tongue, and from which he died. In Scripture, if a man blasphemed God, the Lord caused him to be stoned to death. The Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And Moses spake to the children of Israel that they should bring forth him that had cursed and stone him with stones. Leviticus 24, 11, 23. Olympius, an Arian bishop, reproached and blasphemed the sacred trinity, whereupon he was suddenly struck with three flashes of lightning which burned him to death. Felix, an officer of Julian, seeing the holy vessels which were used in the sacraments, said in scorn of Christ, See what precious vessels the Son of Mary is served withal. Soon after, he was taken with vomiting of blood from his blasphemous mouth, of which he died. Secondly, if God should not execute judgment on the profaners of his name in this life, their doom is to come. He will not remit their guilt, but deliver them to Satan the jailer, to torment them forever. If God justify a man, who shall condemn him? But if God condemn a man, who shall justify him? If God lay a man in prison, where shall he get bail? God will take his full vengeance on the sinner in hell. It is a fearful thing, Hebrews 10.31, to fall into the hands of the living God. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Exodus 20. 8 through 11. This commandment was engraven in stone by God's own finger, and it will be our comfort to have it engraven on our hearts. The Sabbath day is set apart for God's solemn worship. It is His own enclosure and must not be alienated to common uses. As a preface to this commandment, God has put a memento to it. Remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. This word remember shows that we are apt to forget Sabbath holiness. Therefore, we need a memorandum to put us in mind of sanctifying the day. There is in these words, first of all, a solemn command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Firstly, the matter of it, the sanctifying of the Sabbath, which Sabbath sanctification consists in two things. In resting from our own works, and in a conscientious discharge of our religious duty. Secondly, the persons to whom the commandment of sanctifying the Sabbath is given, either superiors, and they are more private as parents and masters, or more public as magistrates, or inferiors as natives, children, and servants, thy son and thy daughter, thy manservant and thy maidservant, or foreigners, thy stranger that is within thy gates, Point two, the arguments to obey this commandment of keeping holy the Sabbath are, second of all, and firstly, 
from the rationality of it. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. As if God had said, I am not a hard master. I do not grudge thee time to look after thy calling and to get an estate. I have given thee six days to do all thy work in and have taken but one day for myself. I might have reserved six days for myself and allowed thee but one, but I have given thee six days for the works of thy calling and have taken but one day for my own service. It is just and rational, therefore, that thou shouldest set this day in a special manner apart for my worship. Secondly, the second argument for sanctifying the Sabbath is taken from the justice of it. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. As God had said, the Sabbath day is my due. I challenge a special right in it, and no other has any claim to this day. He who robs me of this day and puts it to common uses is a sacrilegious person. He steals from the crown of heaven, and I will in no wise hold him guiltless. Thirdly, the third argument for sanctifying the Sabbath is taken from God's own observance of it. He rested the seventh day, as if the Lord should say, Will you not follow me as a pattern? Having finished all my works of creation, I rested the seventh day. So, having done all your secular work on the six days, you should now cease from the labor of your calling and dedicate the seventh day to me as a day of holy rest. Fourth, the fourth argument for Sabbath sanctification is taken from the benefit which redounds from a religious observation of the Sabbath. The Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. God not only appointed the seventh day, but he blessed it. It is not only a day of honor to God, but a day of blessing to us. It is not only a day wherein we give God worship, but a day wherein he gives us grace. On this day a blessing drops down from heaven. God himself is not benefited by it. We cannot add one cubit to his essential glory, but we ourselves are benefited. This day, religiously observed, entails a blessing upon our souls, our estate, and our posterity. Not keeping it brings a curse. Jeremiah 17:27. God curses a man's blessings. Malachi 2:2. 2, 2. The bread which he eats is poisoned with a curse. So the conscientious observation of the Sabbath brings all manner of blessings with it. These are the arguments to induce Sabbath sanctification. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The thing I would have you now observe is that the commandment of keeping the Sabbath was not done away with the ceremonial law, but is purely moral, and the observation of the Sabbath is to be continued to the end of the world. Question, where can it be shown that God has given us a discharge from keeping one day in seven? Why has God appointed a Sabbath? First, with respect to himself, it is requisite that God should reserve one day in seven for his own immediate service, that thereby he might be acknowledged to be the great sovereign Lord who has power over us both to command worship and appoint the time when he will be worshipped. Secondly, with respect to us, the Sabbath day is for our interest. It promotes holiness in us. The business of weekdays makes us forgetful of God and our souls. The Sabbath brings him back to our 
remembrance. When the falling dust of the world has clogged the wheels of our affections, that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wheels of our affections, and they move swiftly on. God has appointed the Sabbath for this end. On this day the thoughts rise to heaven. The tongue speaks of God and is as the pen of a ready writer. The eyes drop tears, and the soul burns in love. The heart, which all the week was frozen, on the Sabbath melts with the word. The Sabbath is a friend to religion. It files off the rust of our graces. It is a spiritual jubilee wherein the soul is set to converse with its maker. I should next show you the manner how we should keep the Sabbath day holy, but before I come to that, we have the great question to consider. The question, how comes it to pass that we do not keep the Jewish seventh-day Sabbath, as it was in the primitive institution, but have changed it to another day. The old seventh-day Sabbath, which was the Jewish Sabbath, is done away. And in the stead of it, the first day of the week, which is the Christian Sabbath, succeeds. The morality or substance of the fourth commandment does not lie in keeping the seventh day precisely, but keeping one day in seven is what God has appointed. Again, the morality or substance of the fourth commandment does not lie in keeping the seventh day precisely, but keeping one day in seven is what God has appointed. Question, but how comes the first day in the week to be substituted in the place of the seventh day? Not by ecclesiastical authority. The church has no power to ordain a Sabbath. First, the change of the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first was by Christ's own appointment. He is Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2:28. And who shall appoint a day but he who is Lord of it? He made this day, this is the day which the Lord hath made, Psalm 118, 24. Most expositors understand it of the Christian Sabbath, which is called the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, as it is called the Lord's Supper, because the Lord instituted the bread and wine and set it apart from a common use to a special and sacred use, so it is called the Lord's Day, because of the Lord's instituting the first day of the week and setting it apart from common days to his special worship and service. Christ rose on the first day of the week out of the grave and appeared twice on that day to his disciples, John chapter 20, verses 19-26, which was to intimate to them that he transferred the Jewish Sabbath to the Lord's Day. Second, the keeping of the first day of the week was the practice of the apostles. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, Acts 20, 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Here was both preaching and breaking of bread on this day. The keeping of our gospel Sabbath is of apostolic sanction, and we affirm that by virtue of the apostles' practice, this day is to be set apart for divine worship. What the apostles did, they did by divine authority, for they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. Third, the primitive church had the Lord's Day, which we now celebrate in high estimation. It was a great badge of early Christian religion to observe this day. Ignatius, who lived in the time of John the Apostle, has these words, Let everyone that loveth Christ keep holy the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. 
This day has been observed by the churches of Christ above 1,600 years, as one learned writer notes. Thus you see how the seventh-day Sabbath came to be changed to the first-day Sabbath. The grand reason for changing the Jewish Sabbath to the Lord's Day is that it puts us in mind of the mystery of our redemption by Christ. The reason why God instituted the old Jewish Sabbath was to be a memorial of the creation. But he has now brought the first day of the week in its place in memory of a more glorious work than creation, which is redemption. Compare the giving of the law in Exodus with the second giving of the law on the other side, Jordan, in Deuteronomy. Great was the work of creation, but greater was the work of redemption. As it was said, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, Haggai 2.9. So the glory of the redemption was greater than the glory of creation. Great wisdom was seen in making us, but more miraculous wisdom in saving us. Great power was seen in bringing us out of nothing, but greater power in helping us when we were worse than nothing. It cost no more to redeem than to create us. In creation it was but speaking a word, Psalm 148, verse 5, in redeeming. There was shedding of blood, 1 Peter 1.19. Creation was the work of God's fingers, Psalm 8.3. Redemption was the work of His arm, Luke 1.51. In creation, God gave us ourselves. In the redemption, He gave us Himself. By creation, we have life in Adam. By redemption, we have life in Christ, Colossians 3.3. 3. By creation, we had a right to an earthly paradise, by redemption, we have a title to a heavenly kingdom. Christ might well change the seventh day of the week into the first, as it puts us in mind of our redemption, which is a more glorious work than creation. Use one. The use I shall make of this is that we should have the Christian Sabbath we now celebrate in high veneration. The Jews called their Sabbath the desire of days and the queen of days. This day we must call a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, Isaiah 58:13. Metal that has the king's stamp upon it is honorable and of great value. God has set his royal stamp upon the Lord's day. It is the Sabbath of the Lord, and this makes it honorable. We should look upon this day as the best day in the week. What the phoenix is among birds, what the sun is among planets, the Lord's day is among other days. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Psalm 118.24, God has made all the days, but he has blessed this one. As Jacob got the blessing from his brother, so the Sabbath got the blessing from all other days in the week. It is a day which we converse in a special manner with God. The Jews called the Sabbath a day of light. So on this first day of the week, the sun of righteousness shines upon the soul. The Christian Sabbath is the market day of the soul, the cream of time. It is the day of Christ's rising from the grave and the Holy Ghost descending upon the earth. It is perfumed with the sweet odor of prayer, which goes up to heaven as incense. On this day the manna falls, that is angels' food. This is the soul's festival day on which the graces act their part. The other days of the week are most employed about earth, this day about heaven. 
Then you gather straw, now pearl. Christ now takes the soul up into the mount and gives it transfiguring sights of glory. Now he leads his spouse into the wine cellar and displays the banner of his love. Now he gives her his spiced wine and the juice of the pomegranate. Song of Solomon 2.4, Song of Solomon 8.2. The Lord usually reveals more to the soul on the Lord's day. The Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. He was carried up on this day in divine raptures toward heaven. This day a Christian is in the altitudes. He walks with God and takes, as it were, a turn with the Lord in heaven. 1 John 1.3 On this day holy affections are quickened. The stock of grace is improved. Corruptions are weakened and Satan falls like lightning before the majesty of the word. Christ wrought most of his miracles upon the Jewish Sabbath, so he does still on the Christian. Dead souls are raised and hearts of stone are made flesh. How highly should we esteem and reverence this day? It is more precious than rubies. God has anointed it with the oil of gladness above its fellows. On the Christian Sabbath, we are doing angels' work. Our tongues are tuned to God's praises. The Lord's day on earth is a shadow and a type of the glorious Sabbath rest. The eternal Sabbath we hope for in heaven, when God shall be the temple and the Lamb shall be the light of it. Revelation 21, 22, and 23. Use 2. Six days shalt thou labor. God would not have any live out of a calling. Religion gives no warrant for idleness. It is a duty to labor six days, as well as keep holy rest on the seventh day. We hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 A Christian must not only mind heaven, but his earthly calling. While the ship's captain has his eye to the star, he has his hand on the ship's helm. Without labor, the pillars of a commonwealth will dissolve, and the earth, like the sluggard's field, will be overrun with briars. Proverbs 24.31 Adam, in innocence, though a monarch of the world, must not be idle. Adam, dress and till the ground, Genesis 2.15. Piety does not exclude industry. Standing water putrefies. Inanimate creatures are in motion. The sun goes its circuit. The fountain runs and the fire sparkles. Animate creatures work. Solomon sends us to the ant to learn labor. Proverbs 6.6. 6. The bee, the emblem of industry. Some of the bees trim the honey. Other bees work the wax. Others frame the comb. Others lie sentinel, guarding the door of the hive to keep out the drone. And shall not man much more in your himself to labor? That law in paradise was never repealed. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Genesis 3:19. Such professors are to be disliked to talk of living by faith, but live out of a calling. They're like the lilies which toil not, neither do they spin. Matthew 6:28. It is a speech of holy and learned Mr. Perkins. Let a man be endowed with excellent gifts 
and hear the word with reverence, and enjoy the ordinances, yet if he practice not the duties of his calling, all is but hypocrisy. What is an idle person good for? What benefit is a ship that lies always on the shore, or armor that hangs up and rusts? To live out of your calling exposes you to temptation. Melanchthon calls laziness or idleness the devil's bath, because he bathes himself with delight in an idle soul. We do not sow seed in ground when it lies fallow, but Satan sows most of his seed of temptation in such persons as lie fallow and are out of a calling. Idleness is the nurse of vice. Seneca, an old heathen, could say, No day passes me without some labor. An idle person stands for a cipher in the world, and God writes down no ciphers in the book of life. We read in Scripture of eating the bread of idleness and drinking the wine of violence, Proverbs 31.27, Proverbs 4.17. It is as much a sin to eat the bread of idleness as to drink the wine of violence. An idle person can give no account of his time. Time is a talent to trade with, both in our particular and general callings. The lazy person hides his talent in the earth. He does no good. The slothful man's time is not lived, but lost. An idle person lives unprofitably. He cumbers the ground. God calls the slothful servant wicked, thou wicked and slothful servant, Matthew twenty-five twenty-six, One king, Draco, whose laws were written in blood, deprived those of their life who would not work for their living. In Hertruya, they called such persons to be banished. Idle persons live in the breach of the commandment, Six days shalt thou labor. Let them take heed that they be not banished from heaven. A man may as well go to hell on unemployment as for not believing. Having spoken of the reasons of sanctifying the Sabbath, I come now to point three, the manner of sanctifying the Sabbath. First, negatively, we must do no work in it. This is the commandment, in it thou shalt do no manner of work. God has set apart this day for himself, therefore we are not to use it in common by doing any civil work. As when Abraham went to sacrifice, he left his servants and the ass at the bottom of the hill. So when we are to worship God on this day, we must leave all worldly business behind. Leave the ass at the bottom of the hill, Genesis 22.5. As Joseph, when he would speak with his brethren, thrust out the Egyptians, so... When we would converse with God on this day, we must thrust out all earthly employments. The Lord's Day is a day of holy rest. All secular work must be forborne and suspended, as it is a profanation of the day. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I testified against them. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do, and profane the Sabbath day? 
Nehemiah 13, 15, and 17, it is sacrilege to rob for civil work the time which God has set apart for his worship. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.